Okay, everybody, welcome back to Behind the Knife. Uh, we have a special episode uh, just covering the basics of event management. We've been hearing from a lot of people out there that are, are getting concerned, um, rightfully so, with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic that uh, potentially we're going to have a lot of people out there managing events that aren't used to managing events. So we wanted to put together a quick refresher course um, for event management for the non-intensivist. Um, I should say that you know this is something in our hospital that, that we're actively preparing for. And one thing that we're doing is making little pocket guides, pocket, pocket cards that are laminated that we're distributing to all our providers that have the basics of event titration for, you know, for different scenarios. And, and we're happy to share that with everybody out there with the understanding that, of course, there's gonna be a lot of differences of opinion on how to manage event. This is just the basics, so take it for what it's worth. Use it if you want to. Don't use it if you don't want to. Don't send us a lot of angry tweets about how you disagree with our event management. Um, this is just, uh, just a, a general for the non-intensivist. Um, also wanted to promote that um, if for anybody out there that's interested, there are some excellent resources on the Society of Critical Care Medicine. They have um, some complimentary refreshers for critical care management for non-intensivists, as well as um, some COVID-19 specific resources uh, to help everybody get prepared. Um, so we'll be posting a link to those resources in our show notes. So be sure to check that out. Um, today to help us out, we have uh, a man who really needs no introduction. He's been on the, on the program multiple times, um, very popular. We have Dr. Matthew J. Martin. He is the former uh, trauma director at Madigan Army Medical Center, and he's currently the uh, associate director of trauma resource and professor of surgery at Scripps Mercy Hospital. Dr. Martin, thank you for being here with us on such short notice, um, and uh, we really appreciate your insights. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me. Uh, as I've said, it's it's hard to find time between not going to work or not going to meetings. <laughs> well, I imagine, uh, unfortunately, I think uh, we're all uh, potentially going to be very busy here shortly. So it's good to have this downtime to get rested up. Yeah, and and uh, let me add, I I actually looked at those uh, the SCCCM course for non-intensivists, the event management one. And it's actually excellent. So I'd recommend anybody who wants to brush up, just go and do that. It's a uh, recorded uh, PowerPoint presentation, basically. Uh, and also, there's going to be a COVID-19 specific addition to the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines. And the, the pre-publication print of that should be available, they said, probably by this weekend. Uh, it definitely by next week. So that's another great resource I would look out for. Hey guys, in addition to this, uh, Patrick Georgioff, a fellow at UT Houston, is putting together a fantastic video, and it's going to go into a little more detail. So if you want, if you like visuals and you want a little more detail in all the ventilator modes, uh, but it's simple enough for surgeons to understand, you should check out this video. It'll be on our Behind the Knife YouTube page. We'll have it in our show notes, and we'll be tweeting it out tomorrow. Awesome. Okay, and all. All these will be in the links on our show notes. And uh, Jason, there's just one thing I disagreed with on your intro is that um, if they do have any disagreements, I think they should direct them at Dr. Matthew Martin on Twitter. <laughs> I, I actually really enjoy seeing his arguments uh, and debates on Twitter. So please uh, send them to Dr. Martin. Yeah, they're going to have yeah. to take a number. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but actually, that's, that, that's a good point to start with as, as – like you said, there, there's a ton of different opinions on some of the fine points, but but I'd actually say most people agree on the basics, and and I think that's really what we want to focus on today is is getting a good 
basic approach to starting a patient on uh, a ventilator and then, you know, making basic vent adjustments. Uh, and, and I think it's more important to highlight basic principles, uh, e even though, you know, technically when you dig down into the fine details, they might, may not be, you know, entirely correct, you know, from what a, a high-level pulmonologist might understand. Uh, but I think it's more important people get the basic message than we, you know, really route around in the details too much. Great. So let's just get started. So this is going to be down and dirty. Uh, we're not going to get into all the fine points of how to, you know, how to approach a COVID-19 patient as, you know, a lot of those treatments and the PPE and all that stuff is changing by the day. Hopefully we'll, we'll be able to put some information out there, but this is primarily going to be focused on ventilator management. So, so Dr. Martin, you know, let's say, you know, we have a COVID-19 patient. Uh, they're, you know, on that borderline of getting intubated. They're, they're becoming a little hypoxic. How, how would you first, you know, I, I've heard a lot of different things in this coming week that, we don't want to even bother with high flow or CPAP or anything because that's just going to spread the virus around the room. Have you heard anything like that? And how would you approach that patient um, uh, initially? Yeah. And, and, I, and of course, part of that's going to depend on where are you? You know, are you in an ER room that's open? Or are you in a negative pressure room, you know, where, where you might have to worry less about aerosolization? Uh, what are your resources? So, so all of those are gonna gonna factor into it, uh, you know. And then, and then again, there was the recent New England Journal publication that looked at this that that has shown that the virus can be aerosolized, and it actually looks like it sticks around on surfaces for longer than we initially thought. So, so I think you need to take all those into consideration. Uh, but, but assuming we're at a you know relatively well resourced U.S. medical center. Uh, then, then I think you would start with, you know, your, your basic obvious workup uh, and diagnostic workup. And, and your first thing should be, you know, testing them for coronavirus as well as testing them for the other common causes and ruling out influenza. Uh, but then initiating respiratory management, obviously, you're going to start with supplemental oxygen uh, and then your assessment of their oxygenation status. Um, and, and, and I know I've seen some cautions about uh, avoid high flow nasal cannula. Um, there's really no good data though to support that. Uh, and, and I would actually probably go to high flow nasal cannula first, obviously with, you know, appropriate PPE and precautions. Okay. Um, are you going to be, um, you know, uh, quicker to, to intubate these patients over, you know, somebody else, or are you going to try, um, you know, some CPAP, some BiPAP first? Yeah, so so I, I would take the same kind of ladder approach as I would to most patients with a couple caveats. Um, one is there, and this is this is all really evolving as we get some of the experience that comes in from Italy, from China, from Seattle, from other places that have been hard hit. Uh, it, it seems that you know the, these patients, their primary their primary deficit is oxygenation and hypoxia. Uh, it, it doesn't appear to be a usually a bad compliance issue like standard ARDS. Uh, it, it's actually, it seems like it's acting more like a patient with pulmonary edema. And, and most mm -hmm. of the problem is from secretions and respiratory fluid. Uh, and, and really, I think a good basic approach is to think about treating them like a pulmonary edema patient. So supplemental oxygen, you want to avoid drowning them in fluid. Uh, and then I think CPAP is a great option uh, because that will raise their mean airway pressure reliably. Uh, and, and I think the, the series we have so far have shown that you can prevent intubation 
you know, in most of the patients just by doing those measures. So, so I would do high, high flow nasal cannula uh, and then CPAP. Um, th there is some data that BiPAP is not a great option uh, and from similar viral outbreaks that actually outcomes were worse with BiPAP. So a patient that was failing those two, then mm -hmm. I would go to intubation. And then okay. I think the final, the final thing to say about intubation too is depending on the scenario is many people are advocating that as a form of source control in addition to a form of you know initiating pulmonary therapy uh, with the thought being they're intubated now you don't have to worry as much as long as the circuit is closed about them aerosolizing uh, and spreading and and I think if you have a real you know a real problem with local contamination and you don't have you know negative pressure rooms etc that might be a place where you go to innovate early also as a form of infection control. Excellent. Okay, so take us through that process. So uh, you have a patient that you've, you've, you've tried these you know, non-invasive measures, but they're still hypoxic and, and now you're, you're intubated. What would you go to for your initial uh, vent settings? Yeah, and, and one final addition to that is you know, the hallmark that, that people seem to be kicking around is this silent hypoxemia. Uh, and, and what they mean is the patients will generally look okay and they'll have a significant degree of hypoxia uh, that you might not have picked up on just by looking at the patient or examining them, uh, meaning they tend not to get short of breath, uh, not to have a lot of obvious respiratory difficulty, even with a significant degree of hypoxemia. And I think, again, that goes back to the pathophysiology we're dealing with, that, that they're not getting non-compliant lungs like standard ARDS. So, so just be aware of that. They may not manifest the tachypnea or obvious respiratory distress that other patients would, and they can be significantly hypoxemic. Okay, so so now you've now you've intubated the patient, and so wait before we get there. So that's a great point. So what would be your your criteria then for intubation if if they're you know clinically look okay? Are you basing this off of your your ABG? Or are you basing this off of their oxygen saturations? What, what are well, you basing? I, I, I think again, in, in like in most ER settings, you're initially going to be basing off of oxygen saturations, and and if you aren't able to keep an oxygen saturation above ninety percent, that would be one criteria. Uh, and then if you have the capability to do, you know, a blood gas and, and guide it by that, uh, you know, if you have a PO2 that you're unable to keep above, say, 60, uh, that would be another criteria to go ahead and intubate. Um, okay. And I, do, I don't think, and, and there's pretty good data on this, of, you know, being trying to target a SAT of 100 uh, or 98 or higher. I think as long as you're above 90, and you're not losing ground, you can forestall an intubation. But obviously, if you're not meeting those goals or the patient is deteriorating, then that's the patient you would intubate them. Great. Okay. So sorry to interrupt. So now we have the patient intubated. You know, what's your what's your initial approach? Yeah. So so now the patient's intubated. And and I guess what I would say first is, and you mentioned this at the beginning, is is each institution will have their own kind of preferred ventilator strategy. They'll obviously have their local brand of ventilators and what their standard modes are. And so the best thing you can do in preparation for something like this is go talk to your ICU teams and, and probably the best person to talk to would be your respiratory therapist and say, okay, what is our standard initial vent mode uh, and, and which ventilator do we have and you know what are the common settings? Uh, and so that's that's what I would say is get to know that at your own institution, and you'll hear a lot of acronyms and abbreviations that you know mean the same thing, and and they're just different by the different vent brands. Like like 
uh, IMV or volume control or assist control, and they may all mean the same thing. They're just different brands of ventilators. So, but now you've innovated the patient and and really I think your your two first choices of a ventilation modality are, are you gonna deliver a tidal volume by giving them a set volume, which would be a volume controlled mode. So you're gonna set the exact number of cc's that you're gonna instill into that patient's lungs to give them that breath. Or are you gonna do a pressure controlled mode where what you're gonna be primarily setting is a pressure and the machine's gonna deliver enough volume to get you to that pressure. Uh, and, and I would say the simpler way for most people because we think about breathing in terms of tidal volumes and not pressures. So for the non-intensivist, probably the safest and easiest is to start with a volume controlled modality. And I would say the most common volume controlled modality would usually be uh, SIMV. Uh, so you would be, you would set a respiratory rate, you would set a tidal volume, and then you would set uh, the FiO2 or amount of oxygen you're giving them, and then you would set the PEEP. Uh, and, and, and then the other, the other big helper I think now is the electronic medical record uh, and you know whatever system you have, Epic, et cetera, they usually now have predefined sets of orders for ventilator support. So a lot of times you can go through and just click boxes. But, but I'd say in, in most places, uh, you would probably go to a volume controlled mode of ventilation first, like SIMV. Now, are you basing that off of, and, and now would you, would you lean towards a pressure control or a volume control based on say like their P to F ratio? Would that affect your decision at all? Uh, the P to F ratio wouldn't affect my decision. The, the P to F ratio just tells you how bad their oxygenation is. And, and then it can also obviously let you categorize them if if their P to F ratio is less than 300, you know, that's meets ARDS criteria. And mm -hmm. that just lets you then categorize them into mild, moderate, or severe. Um, the P to F ratio doesn't really give you any, any clues about whether you should go with volume control or pressure control as your initial modality. Um, that decision re really, I think, is a lot of that is institution and provider specific. Uh, and then there's some finer tuned factors. For example, if, if a patient has really bad lung compliance mm -hmm. and, and you're really struggling with getting high pressures with a volume control mode, that's where you might switch over to a pressure control mode. But just based on the P to F, no. I, I, and for the, again, for the non-intensivists, to keep things simple, I would just say start off with a standard volume controlled mode uh, like SIMV, set your initial title volume, and, and what I would also say is just download the ARDSnet protocol, mm -hmm. um, which tells you exactly how to initiate ventilation. And if you just follow that protocol, you know, you're going to be good. And, and what that says is you start off at eight cc's per kilogram, and, and that's of predicted body weight, uh, which, you know, you can look up the calculation for that. If you don't have it and they're a normal body habitus person, you can start with their actual weight and then calculate their predicted. But you start off with eight cc's per kilogram. Uh, I would just start off with 100% FiO2. And, and your goal here is, you know, the patient's decompensating, you want to get control of their ventilation and then start worrying about titrating things like FiO2 titrating that down. Just start them on full ventilator support. So an adequate tidal volume, eight cc's per kilogram, an adequate respiratory rate, which is usually be anywhere from 15 to 20. Uh, start them off with a high FiO2 at 100%. 
get them intubated, get them on the ventilator, see what their saturations are. Uh, you know, you can check a blood gas. I'd give them at least 30 minutes to equilibrate, check a blood gas, and then you can start fine tuning things. Oh, and, and PEEP. Uh, generally, you would start them off at a PEEP of five, um, and then you would titrate that up as needed. And that's usually, again, based on if they still have low oxygen saturations or a low PO2, that's when you would start titrating PEEP up. Okay. So, um, so a lot of information there. So you said you would start off with a tidal volume of, of eight. What is all this we hear about, you know, the arts, you know, and uh, low tidal volume um, uh, ventilation? When does that, when do we start thinking about that? Well, so, so that is, that is the ARDSnet low tidal volume approach. You start them off at eight cc's per kilogram and your goal is to reduce them down to four to six cc's mm -hmm. per kilogram or mls per kilogram um, so start them in eight and and that'll usually you know again your goal initially is not to right away get them down to the lowest tidal volume possible your goal initially is to oxygenate ventilate stabilize them and then start adjusting the ventilator support which hopefully will be decreasing the amount of ventilator support you're giving so so i would start them in eight cc's per kilogram and then you can slowly reduce the tidal volume, uh, and they recommend at one cc per kilogram at, at intervals of at least two hours until you get to four to six cc's per kilogram of predicted body weight. Got it. And how about that FiO2 that you start off at 100%? How are you uh, titrating that? Yeah, so, so again, it depends on your initial oxygenation response. And I would say most patients, uh, including uh, patients with coronavirus, you know, usually you'll start them off on 100% FiO2. Their SATs, will, they'll respond immediately because you're giving them positive pressure ventilation with PEEP, which is really what they needed. Uh, and you're able to rapidly wean down their FiO2. So, so I would start them at 100. And if their SATs are 100, then I just start titrating the FiO2 down and, and I think you can titrate it pretty quickly. And I, and I usually titrate it. I would go from 100 to 80 immediately. And then I would keep titrating that down. You can titrate that down every 10 to 15 minutes by 10% until you get to whatever your desired goal is, which should be usually around an FiO2 of 30 to 40%. Okay. And uh, so let's say in this scenario, you know, you do that intubated patient and uh, you're able to titrate everything, you know, down appropriately and, and they're stable at this point. For the non-intensivist, you know, how can they think about uh, analgesia and sedation? What, are, what, what, what should they be using? So, again, th this will also vary by your center and whatever their protocols are. And, and the important thing, I think, is that you are using some predefined order sets. And, and the most important thing is you're using some kind of verified sedation scale that the nurses can titrate it by. Uh, and you know, at our institution, it would usually be propofol uh, for the initial sedation agent. Uh, and then we would either add uh, a PRN narcotic or a, an intravenous drip like a fentanyl drip for pain. Uh, although these patients, it's really, again, for coronavirus patients, it would mostly be about sedation and you shouldn't need to add a whole lot of pain control on top of that. Uh, other centers would use uh, either a PRN or a continuous strip benzodiazepine, uh, and I think either of those is appropriate. Okay. Um, 
So now let's say that the patient's worsening. So you've had them on their your minimal vent settings, but their 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 you know their oxygenation is worsening. How do you go? What's your approach to um, changing these ventilator settings and and um, uh, increasing decrease the FiO2 first, increase the PEEP first? Um, what do you do? Yeah. So so and and even stepping back from the minute. So I think now you've got them on the ventilator, and you want to assess the results you're getting and see, do I have a problem? So it's either gonna be patients doing great or I have some kind of problem and what type of problem is that? So, so the first thing you wanna do is get them on the ventilator, assess their oxygenation. You wanna get a blood gas you know, at some point, usually within the first hour, uh, and that will also help you with the oxygenation, but it will give you the CO2 so you can assess the ventilation and see if you are ventilating okay or if you have a ventilation problem. And then the third thing, which again, you'll know immediately is, do I have a pressure problem? And that's where the vent will give you a pressure or the pressure they're hitting with every breath. You'll see it right on the screen. And that's called the peak inspiratory pressure. And, and your whole goal of this ventilation strategy is to avoid barotrauma, avoid ventilating them with pressures that are too high. Uh, and, and in general, that's when they start to get above 30, now they're in the, the pressure too high range. And then you got to start thinking about, well, I need to make some adjustments to decrease that amount of pressure I'm, I'm causing in the lungs. Uh, on the ARDSnet protocol and a lot of the publications you'll read, they, they say to guide that by plateau pressure. And that can be confusing to non-intensivists because the number you're seeing on the ventilator with every breath is a peak pressure. And the way you get a plateau pressure is you there's an inspiratory hold button and you push that. And what that does is it pauses them at the end of inspiration. And then it gives time uh, for the uh, tidal volume to equilibrate throughout the lung. And what happens is your peak pressure will come down a little and level off. And that number is your plateau pressure. And, okay. and I, think, I think that's great to check that initially. Uh, and just you can see the relationship. It's usually just a little bit lower than your peak and make sure there's not a big gradient. Uh, after you've done that, if you've seen the relationship is pretty consistent, I, I just go by peak pressures. And if your peak pressure is less than 30, you know your plateau is less than 30. And, and it just makes it simpler to think about. So so first thing I do is, is I then assess, do I have an oxygenation problem? Do I have a ventilation problem? Do I have a pressure problem? And, and then I would address each one of those. And, and the pressure problem is that's the one where you're lowering the tidal volume because you don't want to ventilate the patient at high pressures. Uh, so for example, if you've, if you've come down to six cc's per kilogram on your tidal volumes and you're still hitting pressures, peak pressures or plateaus that are above 30, that's when you might continue to decrease down to four cc's per kilogram. But if you've come down to six cc's per kilogram and your peak pressures are 20, you know, then I wouldn't decrease them any further because, you know, your your pressures are fine. In fact, there is some there's some data that that decreasing tidal volumes in patients who have great compliance actually worsens outcomes. So so that's where that little fine tuning of the tidal volume comes in. And and you don't have to be crazy about getting them down to four cc's, you know, per kilogram, no matter what. You know, if you're ventilating them, ventilating them with pressures that are in a reasonable range, especially 20 to 25, then you're good. Don't mess around with that. You know, go on next and look at, do I have an oxidation or a ventilation problem? 
Now, when you when you decrease that, let's say you're having a pressure problem and you decrease your your um, you know tidal volume, um, do you uh, reflexively increase your respiratory rate in order to uh, maintain that same uh, minute ventilation, or do you kind of see where they settle out? Yeah, that's you see where they settle out, and that that's where the concept of permissive hypercapnia comes in. Mm-hmm. So, so, so one one I, one of the general principles of ICU care uh, to avoid is trying to make them look exactly like a normal, non-critically ill person. And and we've probably heard a lot of patients doing that, like with with the you know strict glycemic control. Right, trying to get sugars down to the eighty-one ten range. We've probably heard a lot of patients with that. Um, trying to make their blood gas look exactly normal. Uh, that that's not something you need to focus on. So what we know is we can let the CO two rise, which will happen if we're ventilating with low tidal volumes and and low respiratory rates. We can let the PCO two rise. Having a high PCO two doesn't hurt uh, at all unless it causes your pH to get significantly low. And, and that, you know, where that harm point is, is probably about a pH of 7.2. So I'd say as long as the pH is in the 7.25 or above range, we accept a high CO2. We accept that we're underventilating them. And, and as long as the, the pH is 7.25 or above, then we, we don't make changes just to make that blood gas number look better and make ourselves feel better because it has no benefit to the patient. So, so what I would say is I would, I would not change the respiratory rate reflexively. I would see what my blood gas is doing and look at my pH and my PCO2. Okay. What about an oxygenation problem then? Okay. So uh, how do we, how do we address that? Yeah. So, so an oxygenation problem, uh, again, first thing I would look at are the pressures and am I having a pressure problem? And then if not, and it's a pure oxygenation problem, um, the, the standard ARDSnet approach is, you know, how, how do you make oxygenation better, right? Uh, you either increase the FiO2 or you can start increasing the PEEP. Or the third option is change them to a different mode that you think will oxygenate them better. And, and the ARDSnet approach in most cases would be you then start to titrate the PEEP up. And, and your whole goal there is to see if they're PEEP responsive. So you start bring in their peep up. So you start off at a peep of five, let's say, you know, I would go to eight uh, and from there go to 10. And, and again, download the ArtsNet protocol. There's, there's a peep, they call it a peep ladder. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's two, uh, there's actually two different scales. There's a low peep titration ladder and a high peep titration ladder. And, and it seems, especially for coronavirus, again, thinking about this almost like a pulmonary edema patient that they, they do better with a higher, with a higher peep ladder. So I would use the higher PEEP ladder of the ArtsNet protocol, which basically has you titrate up the PEEP based on their how much FiO2 they're requiring. And it starts at a PEEP of five, and you can titrate it all the way up to a PEEP of 24, uh, again, for a patient who's requiring 100% FiO2. So I would start titrating their PEEP up. But what you don't want to do is just keep turning that PEEP number up and you're not seeing any improvement. So you want to see if they're PEEP responsive or not. And so you follow the oxygen saturation, and you can also follow intermittent blood gases and see if your PaO2 is getting better with those PEEP increases. And, and if it is, then you just you titrate them up to an optimal PEEP, 
if it's not, you know, you've done a couple peep adjustments and it's not doing anything or you're getting worse, that's now where you have to start thinking about, do I need to change to a different mode of ventilation or do something else to improve their oxygenation? And what, what are you getting at there? Something else? Well, then, then we get into what are the what are the adjuncts we can do for these patients and in what order? And mm-hmm. and I'd say really, really your their three main options are do I give them a paralytic? Do I prone them, flip them over and place them in prone position? Do I go to a different ventilator modality? Uh, and, and I'd say probably the most common one is APRV, which we can talk about a little bit. And then the final, you know, kind of the the big gun would be, do I need to go to something as drastic as ECMO for the patient who's failing all of those? And I'd say that's the usual stepwise approach. And and there's a little bit of disagreement about which order those things should be done in. Uh, And that will also depend, you know, on your unit and your, your local capabilities. So some places would go to proning as the next uh, intervention. Uh, and for example, in, in Italy, if you've, there's been some videos of their ICUs and you'll see all the patients are, are on their stomach and you know, they're proning everybody and proning them early. Uh, other places would go to a paralytic first, then probably go to proning. Um, other places would probably switch them over to APRV first and then go to something, go to proning and paralytic. Uh, and then the ECMO question, I, I think we can, I, I don't think we need to get into that because that's, that's really, a non-intensivist will not be getting into the ECMO issue. But for, for anybody whose center is getting prepped to deal with this, I think you need to also have that as part of your plan of what if we have a patient who needs ECMO? You know, do we do ECMO? Do we have an ECMO center available? And what's our process going to be for that? Yeah, I would hope if you're getting to these adjuncts, you know, the paralytics, the proning, the APRV, and and certainly ECMO, if you're a non-intensivist, hopefully at this point you have a little bit of, of intensivist assistance. But let's let's play worst case scenario out there. Um, you know, we're not going to have enough rota beds for everybody. So for the non-intensivists out there, or even for how do you explain to your nurses, you know, what's the idea behind proning and what's a, a good, you know, kind of practical guide to how often do you need to be flipping them? You know, uh, what, what can you do here if we're, if we're doing this in the hallway? Yeah. And, and, and what I would say, and especially for the non-intensivist, I, I'm actually a big fan of give them a dose of paralytic. You know, give, give them a one dose of a relatively short-acting paralytic and just see what that does, especially for, you know, the patient who's desatting and they're trying to figure out what to do next. And, and you'll see a significant number of patients that you do that and their oxygenation improves and, and some of their issue was vent dyssynchrony. Uh, and, and that not only does that improve them, but it buys you time to think about, okay, what am I going to do next? So, so I, would, I would use that as something to do very early, especially by the you know non-experienced intensivist or person who's filling in, give them a dose of ecuronium or rocuronium, see how they respond, and then you can start thinking about okay, do I need to prone them? Should I switch them to a different mode of ventilator? Uh, proning, I, I think, would be a next go-to. Uh, this I think would also depend though on your local resources, you know, and and you know if you're in a unit and you have 
one or two coronavirus patients and you have, you know, a bunch of personnel and you can prone them pretty safely, you might do that. If you are in a unit that's full of coronavirus patients and, you know, you're, you're at, you know, you're one to three, uh, one nurse for every two to three patients, you may not be able to safely prone all those patients. So that might be somewhere you, you just say, we're going to go to paralytic. We're going to go to a different mode like APRV uh, and proning will be a last resort. So, so proning, you know, there, there's been a couple studies that have shown a benefit. Uh, it does appear to be particularly beneficial, again, in coronavirus respiratory failure. And, and I think that just gets to part of the issue of it's, it's a patchy consolidation, ventilation perfusion mismatch uh, that tends to accumulate posteriorly. And so proning them helps you, you know, uh, improve their ventilation perfusion match. Uh, so they seem to respond very well to proning. So, so you either have the rotoprone or similar bed that can do the proning for you. I would say a lot of places now don't have that. Uh, so that's something where you really should create a protocol of how you do that up front. And, and if you're at a place that hasn't done that a lot, I'd say talk to your OR teams because your anesthetists and your OR nurses prone patients all the time for procedures. And they can tell you their protocol for doing it. Obviously, the important thing is that you are you have the patient padded so everything is protected and they don't get any pressure injuries and then two all their tubes and lines are protected when you are flipping them to prone and back from prone because it's very easy to pull lines it's very easily to inadvertently extubate a patient doing this and and it takes usually at least four to five people to safely prone a patient you know if you're doing it manually um, the data generally shows that you you don't want to do short proning periods. I, I remember before the like the Proceva trial came out, we would prone patients for two to four hours and be flipping them. Uh, generally, you want to prone them for at least 12 to 16 hours. So you prone them 12 to 16 hours and then put them back to supine, and then you keep doing those cycles. Uh, I think the important thing is you want to be assessing them as you're doing that of, is the proning doing anything for me? And when can I stop proning? And the best way to do that, I found, is you just make a P to F ratio chart. So, so what's their P to F ratio supine? You prone them. What's their P to F ratio doing when you prone them? And in almost all cases, it'll go up and it'll go up significantly. And then you keep doing that every time you flip them back and forth. And what you'll generally find is the P to F ratio will improve when you prone them, but that improvement will get smaller and smaller. And then you'll get to the point where you're not getting any further PDF improvement by flipping them prone. And that's usually where you can say, okay, I've, I've maxed out my proning and now I can just keep them supine. <clears throat> okay, great. Uh, so moving on from there. So I think the only thing of those adjuncts we haven't really touched on is uh, APRV. Um, and, and we already said we're not really gonna get into ECMO, but for APRV, um, uh, let's touch on this a little bit. Can you maybe give us a little, you know, APRV for dummies. Um, you know, wh what are the settings, and if 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 you're going to this mode of ventilation, what do you, what do you need to be thinking about, and how do you approach it? Yeah, and and th this is where we might get the angry tweets. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's there's a lot of debate about APRV and about when you should go to it. Uh, I, I'd say, in general, you'll find there's a significant percentage of patients who will respond great to APRV. And then there's a smaller percentage that just won't respond to APRV. 
Um, but you you will you will find that uh, it can be you know it can be a great adjunct for patients who you're having a lot of problems with oxygenation. Um, and and again, at least the early reports from the coronavirus experience are that patients have had a good response to APRV. Uh, and and a lot of the recommendations I've seen are to actually go to APRV earlier rather than later in these patients. Uh, but but. Uh, even a lot of intensivists get a little confused about APRV if they haven't used it a lot. And so I imagine for the non-intensivists, it can be relatively confusing. Uh, and there's a bunch of different ways of thinking about it. And I think I think the way I've, I've come to think about it that, that communicates it the best is, especially for surgeons, it's like incentive spirometry. So... So if you think about all of your patients on the ward who are getting incentive spirometry, right? There's there's a pretty predictable cycle they go through, and also if you think about how incentive spirometry works. So so what happens? You you go into that post-op patient, and they're post-op day one, and they get handed the incentive spirometer, and and the first thing is they don't understand what to do with it, right? So so that's say the non-ICU physician who doesn't know what APRV is, and and what do they usually do? They usually start trying to blow into it, yep, right? rather than rather than inhale. Okay, so then you explain it to them of you want them to inhale, and then they'll they'll inhale and they'll kind of do normal breaths. So you know, inhale quickly, exhale, inhale quickly, and they'll they'll you know they'll get the uh, the little ball inside to quickly spike up to whatever mm-hmm. tidal volume and then come down, and then you explain to them, no, I want you to do continuous inhalation and I want you to keep it, you know, and you'll, you'll raise your, your arrow to whatever level you want them to keep that ball at. Right. And, and you'll tell them inhale as long as you can and keep the ball at that, that level. And then, you know, when they've reached their maximum time, they could possibly inhale, they'll do a short exhale. And then you want them to inhale again and you want them, you know, tell them whatever, do that 10 times, 10 times an hour. That's almost what you're trying to do with, or what you are doing with APRV, is you're you're having that patient do these very long inhalations to try and keep the lungs open and maximize your recruitment, and then you're giving them very short periods where they exhale, and then go right back into a long inhalation period. Uh, and what that does is, again, that optimizes your ventilation perfusion match. It it recruits alveoli that were previously collapsed. So so imagine again your incentive spirometry patient. If now you just you had a machine, you know that you put in their mouth that did that for them. That long inhalation, short exhalation, long inhalation. So they didn't have to do any work, but they still want to breathe on their own while that machine is doing that. So if you imagine this machine also lets them take spontaneous breaths whenever they want throughout that inhalation exhalation cycle, that's APRV. That's what you're doing. So the machine is giving them a long inspiration to a certain pressure that you set and then a short exhalation, long inhalation, but they can they can do tidal breathing anytime they want throughout that process, which makes it comfortable for a patient because otherwise that's very uncomfortable if you think about it if, if somebody was forcing you to do that and you know patients can do the incentive spirometry for 
10 breaths, but they couldn't do that all hour because it's not that comfortable. So, so adding that ability for them to breathe spontaneously. So again, if we think about the incentive spirometer, you know, when you, when you raise that, you know, when you raise the arrow to tell them, here's, here's where I want you to raise the ball to. And we talk about APRV settings. We talk about setting a P high and a P low. So raising that arrow to tell them, well, here's, here's the pressure or volume I want you to hit. That's your P high. So you set a P high number. And, and that's the amount the, the machine is going to in, uh, instill air into their lungs until they hit that pressure. And then it's going to hold them in that pressure for a long inhalation. And that's your T high. So now you've said, for example, I want, the, I want you to get them to a airway pressure of 30 and hold that for five seconds. So you've set a P high of 30, a T high of five seconds. Now you're going to set a time that you let them exhale. And remember, you want them to give them a very short time to exhale because you just want them to exhale enough that they get some ventilation, but then go right back up. So generally, your T high is going to be less than a second. And it's usually you start them anywhere from 0.5 to 0.8. Um, we'll usually just start at 0.5. And that's your T low. And then there's another setting for P low, which is the low pressure you get them to. And this is easy. Just don't worry about this. It Just leave it at zero. Don't, don't mess with the P low. Don't even think about it. Just leave it at zero. The numbers you want to focus on are setting the P high, which again is, is the red arrow on the incentive spirometer. Here's the, you know, what I want you to hit in terms of tidal volume or pressure, how long I want you to hold at that long inhalation, and then this short period I'm going to give you for exhalation. And, and those are your APRV settings. And what that does is it gives you a very long period at a high mean airway pressure that helps maximally recruit alveoli and improve your oxygenation. Dr. Martin, can you go over some of the alarms, basic alarms that we see at the bedside and how we can troubleshoot uh, a ventilator? Yeah, I, I, I'd say, you know, again, if, if you're getting high, probably the most important alarm is high pressure. And, and if you're getting high pressure alarm, that's where you need to look, look at your tidal volumes. That's where I would you're getting a high pressure alarm because your peak pressure is exceeding whatever limit you set. I would check a plateau pressure and, and see if those are correlating or if you have a huge difference between them. And, and that can indicate some kind of obstruction in the tubing. Um, and, and then you want to look at the patient because probably the most common cause of those alarms actually isn't that you're, you're having a compliance problem. It's usually that the patient is not synchronizing with the vent and they're fighting the vent. And again, that's where if you run into that problem and their SATs are coming down, they're not oxygen well, that's where I, again, will give them a dose of a short-acting paralytic, see if they respond to that, and then work on, on fixing that issue that's causing the alarm. You know, one, one of the good things about uh, the coronavirus is, again, it, the majority of the patients who need mechanical ventilation don't appear to have a significant compliance problem. So, so we're not running into a lot of problems where we just, we can't ventilate them, you know, at reasonable pressures like some other ARDS patients. They generally have good compliance, which has kind of become a hallmark of the disease. Well, so that brings one question then just for the non-intensivists. Why are they dying? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And most, most of the deaths, the cause does appear to be hypoxemia. Um, 
you know, we don't have a lot of detailed information about exactly why they're dying and why they're they're so refractory to this. I mean, we, we know the high risk populations, you know, patients with underlying lung disease, older patients, uh, but exactly why they're dying and why they're having such a different reaction to the virus, we, we still don't fully understand, which which is really an interesting question. Uh, you know, because there's a lot of these these uh, viral syndromes where, you know, kids will actually do worse. And this is one where kids clearly do much better. Uh, you know, that there's, there was another, I think it was a New England Journal paper just showing that, you know, that there's now, there's multiple different subtypes of what we're calling, you know, COVID-19 or, or this coronavirus. Uh, and they probably interact differently with the patient. But but that's the next question to be asked. But but it doesn't seem like you know they're dying from diffuse multi-organ failure. It seems that it's a primarily a respiratory issue. And and again, this also is going to be, you know, what what rescue modalities do you have? So so some place where they're not hit very hard and they're high resource and they can go to ECMO, you know, they're seeing very low death rates from this. Places where, you know, they're they're having like in Italy, you know, where they're overwhelmed with patients and they're having to make, you know, decisions about not even innovating and offering patients ventilation. You know, that's where you're seeing the higher case fatality ratios. Uh, and again, that's primarily in the older patients or patients with uh, other comorbid diseases and especially pulmonary comorbidities. So so part of that is a resource issue, you know, and, and again, you know, you can. If you can go to ECMO, you can probably salvage almost all these patients, at least from an oxygenation standpoint. Well, excellent. As always, Dr. Martin, we can't thank you enough. I know it was short notice, but it's a very important topic. And I think that this was uh, absolutely wonderful and is going to be very helpful for a lot of people out there who um, uh, rightfully so have a, uh, some increased anxiety uh, that they may uh, be a little bit out of their comfort zone managing some of these patients. You know, I think uh, something that, that you touched on throughout your talk was was just have a plan, know your local resources, and uh, and uh, make sure that the system and you and your colleagues are prepared. Um, once again, we'll, we're going to put some links to the show notes to, to some resources that can help people out there. Scient Scientific American Surgeon has some excellent uh, basic and advanced ventilator management chapters, as well as a recent chapter on COVID-19, Society of Critical Care Medicine, that we'll put a link to in our show notes that has some free resources uh, for um, in, in, um, you know critical care refreshers for non-intensivist and COVID-19 resources. And um, again, uh, Dr. Martin, that was an excellent crash course on ventilator management, and uh, I hope everybody out there enjoys it. Thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Until next time, dominate the day.